It's time for the IHSA Safety Podcast. Welcome to the IHSA Safety Podcast. I'm Enzo Garitano, President and CEO of Infrastructure Health and Safety Association. In today's episode, host Ken Rayner and Kathy Martin, IHSA's mental health and wellness specialist, continue their dialogue on mental health. This episode is focused on beginning the dialogue in the workplace. Ken and Kathy, over to you. Thanks, Enzo. Welcome back to the IHSA Safety Podcast, Kathy Martin. Today's podcast is our second on mental health, with this episode focused on beginning the dialogue in the workplace. Kathy, why should employers and supervisors initiate workplace discussions on mental health? That's a great question, Ken, and a tricky one to answer because it's not really mental health that needs to be discussed as much as it is, it is what's impacting our mental health at work that needs to be discussed. So, of course, we all need to have a base understanding of what we mean by mental health and wellness, just as we need to understand basic concepts, right, around impacting uh, workplace physical safety or physical health, like ergonomics or handling toxic substance, you know, through things like women's training, for example. So, do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> there is a caution here. If we only talk about injury or health status and not the causes, we really are only looking downstream, and that's just a little bit too late. We want to prevent physical injury and fatalities, but we also want to prevent mental harm. So when looking at safety from a health promotion perspective, there is this parable of a village downstream who keeps um, finding people in the river on their town shore. And they keep pulling these drowning victims out of the stream and they from where they floated from, which was obviously upstream. And they keep doing this on a regular basis. They've been doing this for months, perhaps even years on end. And they've never really looked upstream to see why there's people in the river in the first place. And as employers, you know, you should not just be focused, um, of course, on how to support someone who might be struggling with mental health issues. Although this is excellent to have, and we must have policies and programs and supports, you know, in place like our return to work and EFAPs. But we should also be focused on workplace factors that are influencing worker mental health. So it's really is that two-pronged approach, looking upstream while we are pulling out our drowning victims in the workplace. Um, so you can do this through assessing and addressing psychosocial risk, just like we do for physical risks. Talking about mental health and knowing the signs and symptoms of feeling mental health and suicide risk and responding to things like an opioid overdose crisis, it's really critical for saving lives. But like I mentioned, it's a downstream approach and it shouldn't be the only conversation workplaces. Uh, should be focused on. So we need to ask ourselves, what's going on in the workplace that's contributing to the root cause of why folks are in the river in the first place? Um, for example, we know opioid use is high among construction, but why is that? Well, we know uh, one of the root causes is chronic physical pain as a result of injuries and this uh, work through the pain culture of the sector. So one of the root causes uh, for our sector the construction sector is chronic physical pain as a result of injuries. And they have this work through the pain culture uh, within the sector as well. And we could spend time shifting the culture, but our systems are also set up to support this uh, working through the pain mentality. For example, um, our workplace insurance system, WSAB, is built on this hurt versus pain model. So, you know, if you can work through the pain um, and not 
get injured again or not have further injury, then, you know, you really are expected to kind of get back to work. For us in the construction industry, because you often are doing physical heavy labor, that means you're taking extra pain medications, right? To kind of get through that pain. And so like, let me give you an example. I have a desk job and I've just had a recent ankle replacement and I can work right now because I get to sit. <laughs> and uh, if my job required me to stand and do heavy lifting or heavy work, I might be restricted by that pain. But I tell you, my surgeon would say, because they've said it to me, um, she's not going to harm her ankle. She's just going to be in a whole lot of pain if she stands or walks too long. It's not going to damage. You know, I'm full of titanium. <laughs> Uh, some workplaces can accommodate my need, you know, to sit and, and to take it easy. But for the construction folks, um, especially those on the front line, it's more difficult. So often what you'll see is people are relying on painkillers, uh, like I said, to manage the pain and get back to work. And this will increase odds of developing an opioid use problem. And like I said, as you can see by that example, we can't just tell our workers to stop using things like opioids or painkillers. We need to be uh, better at accommodating and modifying work duties and stopping the injury really from happening in the first place through good safe work practices, such as uh, using ergonomic principles and safety uh, PPE. Mental health strain, I use that opioids as an example, but mental health strain is similar. We need to address what's causing mental strain and mental injury. Well, you've, you've given a whole bunch of whys. Um, and, and you know what, and just in terms Terms of you know, I play collegiate and professional sports, and and I can tell you that's that that was the that was always the approach you know from a, a, either a coach or a trainer perspective was are you hurt or are you in pain, and if you're in pain, how bad, and if you're hurt, then you can't play, but if you're in pain, then can you play and can you fight through it, and it's never an easy yeah. thing, never right, yeah. and so if you're having to do that at work all the time, as you know, that's that's a real challenge. Um, and, and you mentioned too, Kathy, our members have been discussing physical hazards for decades. Like, so there's lots of supervisors and, and managers and employers out there that are very comfortable when they talk about physical hazards. But I think, you know, mental hazards are something very new to everybody. And while we all of us have been struggling, you know, to, to a degree probably with mental health, as we mentioned on the last podcast, it's about starting that dialogue. And how do you get up in front of a whole bunch of people and actually you know, start to talk about mental health in the workplace and, and, and addressing that. So how, how could an employer or a supervisor prepare for a workplace discussion or a safety talk on mental health? Yeah, you're right, Ken. Um, and we know that some people, um, quite honestly, they they feel a sense of anxiety when they're asked to start talking about this stuff in the workplace, especially if they've never done it before or they haven't even had conversations, sometimes even in their own personal lives with friends and family. So it is really important if workplaces are going to ask um, folks to start talking about that, that they get them comfortable and prepared uh, to do this. And this is really no different than getting um, your staff comfortable and skilled up when you're asking them to do any new task. And uh, this is really no different. So you need to have a certain level of competency, like with any task, you have to have access to the right tools and resources. And, you know, we need, of course, um, if it's a difficult task, we may need some guidance on how to do the task. So this is, like I said, really no different than any other task that you might be asking uh, a worker. 
So because we know talking about mental health and related topics can be perceived as difficult, um, IHSA has developed a guide for supervisors and managers um, to give them some tips and things to consider. So to answer your question a little bit more directly on how could an employer and or a supervisor prepare for a workplace discussion on mental health, well, I guess what I would suggest is that the employer, uh, like I said, should equip their supervisors with that base level of competency uh, for holding these discussions. And they can do this by ensuring um, they have some base level of knowledge on the topic that they're going to be discussing, of course, and have uh, good communication and listening skills and know where to go to help get some help if they're running into questions that they can't answer or have specific concerns. So that could be, you know, an HR rep that they can go to. Um, and for supervisors and managers or even peers who may want to deliver a safety talk to their team, they should review uh, the facilitator guide that's been prepared um, as it will outline things on how to prepare yourself emotionally and how to check in with yourself, um, especially if you're anxious about it, because that comes across when you're having these discussions. So you really want to be sure you're in the right frame of mind to have the conversation. And also in the guide, there's um, some tips on checking in with your own stigma and biases uh, that we might be holding around the topic too. And we all have bias and this is in itself not a bad thing. It's just something we need to be aware of and how to hold ourselves, I guess, in check and accountable for them if uh, we, sorry, if they're harmful or perceived to be harmful to others. Now, if you're listening today and thinking, what does she mean by bias or stigma or checking in with herself, then don't worry, you're not alone. Um, again, I just encourage you to go to the website at www.ihsa, there's my little plug, and check out the new IHSA. Uh, safety talk and facilita facilitator guide. Um, it, it'll really just unpack it for you there. Now, earlier I mentioned uh, you also need to have good information and the safety talks are evidence sourced uh, information that you can rely on. And we've also developed one page supplementary supports document to go with each of the mental health safety talks. And these one pagers uh, will have a list of items for the facilitator to review ahead of time. There's things like a short video clip that they can watch on the topic. There's a short article and some resources you can share with your group after the talk. Um, and this will help expand everyone's learning. And there's also some tips on what next to do. So we really are trying to, um, I guess what would be the word, can handhold people through that process, make sure that they're feeling well supported in, in doing this. And all of these resources, like I said, can be found uh, on the website. And there is also going to be some new mental health information on the website coming in the near future. So again, in the meantime, uh, if you're struggling or looking for, can't find what you need to find on the website, listeners can also reach out to info at ihsa.ca in the meantime. And, and Kathy, I would, I would imagine... Um you know, some honesty too. And if this is your first time giving, giving a mental health safety talk, um, just letting them, letting the audience know that you might be a little bit nervous or, you know, um, that you've prepared for it, but this is the first time doing it. Um, you know, so, cause I'm sure the audience can empathize with the, the speaker when they're, when they're delivering something new. And I love what you said too, about being in the right frame of mind. Um, I'm sure all of us that are parents can think of times when our kids have approached us on something. And if it, depending on the state of mind that we're in at the time, our reactions may be very 
different um, to the questions they ask or to to what they're posing. So um, checking in with your you know your own frame of mind as you deliver that safety talk can appreciate would be very important. So, okay, so now the employer or the supervisors, they're prepared for the discussion. Well, how about the workers? Like, do the, um, what preparations should we consider for the workers who may be listening and engaging in perhaps their first discussion in the in the workplace? Oh boy, Ken, another great question. Um, we often get so wrapped up in, like I said, in preparing ourselves when we're about to, to lead a meeting or any discussion and we forget to consider the needs of those we'll be talking to. And, and this might be okay for a safety talk about um, guardrails or scaffolding, but not so much for mental health and related topics. So something to consider when uh, preparing participants, I guess, is to mention ahead of time what the topic of the discussion will be about and let them know what the expectations might be from the group, such as ground rules or things like, is it voluntary or mandatory to attend? Well, of course, ground rules such as maintaining uh, respect and confidentiality should be given. That's always a good practice. Um, And Especially if we're going to be talking about personal stories, you know, if something coming came up in the discussion, you might at the end want to reinforce that. Um, another thing to consider in preparing, I guess, uh, the listener, or the person who is going to be participating in the talk would be uh, this concept of a trigger warning. And trigger warnings are just simple statements um, that really will just help someone realize that the topic that we're going to talk about could be triggering. It could be, it could raise some emotional response based on past experiences or traumas for those who are um, participating in the topic. When you say that, I, I think back to Jennifer Wright, who joined us on a podcast uh, recently with uh, Threads Threads for Life. And, you know, she said that every time she hears about um, uh, a workplace fatality and that the Ministry of Labor is, is, um, is investigating, it takes her right back to... Um, you know, the the fatality with her dad. So is that what we're talking about when it comes to like triggers? Yeah, absolutely. Like anything can trigger anyone. Um, it really just depends on your life experience and what's happened to you in the past. Certain colors, certain smells, uh, certain um, environments that you're in can, can be a trigger. So when we are talking about um, sensitive issues, we we know that it can be triggering. And so when we do talk about mental health issues, we often will give tr- uh, trigger warnings, letting people know that. So like you mentioned with your colleague there, even uh, topics such as uh, safety guardrails or scaffolding might be triggering, right? If you've just had a job site accident or fatality because of a failure of one of these, right? To, to not use one of these properly. So anything can be a trigger. And talking about mental health, like I said, or addiction issues in the workplace can be difficult depending on the person's experience. And it's good to recognize this and be sensitive to others' needs and emotional responses by acknowledging that, you know, the conversation might be difficult. And then, you know, of course, asking them just to make sure that they're taking care of themselves uh, throughout the conversation. So there is a general rule of thumb uh, when discussing issues, like I mentioned, that are sensitive in nature, such as suicide and other topics like uh, opioid overdose or racism or sexual violence or harassment. These these definitely should get a trigger warning um, because we know of the trauma nature that they are. Kathy, we've talked about you know preparing the speaker. Now you've you've just shared us some information on uh, preparing the listeners or the workers. Um, what about the logistics like of an optimal mental 
uh, health discussion. Um, from your perspective, like what would be the ideal setting, circumstances for a workplace discussion on mental health, like the size of the group? Is it a presentation versus a dialogue or is it a dialogue versus a presentation? I don't know, time of day, day of the week? What, what are some of the things that people should consider when giving a safety talk? Well, this is one of those, uh, it depends answers. <laughs> I guess my general advice um, to those who might be listening today is to keep in on the smaller size versus larger groups because it's really hard to gauge when someone might be having an emotional response we just talked about triggers right and it all it's also harder to follow up and check in with others to see if everything's okay and offer support if you do notice if someone's struggling so the smaller the group in my mind is is always better and you know, to answer your question about presentations versus dialogue, well, it's important to give some space for dialogue um, in the workplace on these topics. And it'll be really up to the employer to figure out how best to do this. So that's kind of where the it depends. Safety talks certainly um, are, are a good way to begin some dialogue. And they're often delivered in smaller groups. So, you know, they are pretty conducive to, to beginning the conversations, in my opinion. Um, but again, that will depend on the workplace. Some use very large groups to deliver safety talks as well, right? So when you want to deliver information-based education, presentations can be good. So things like understanding why we have an opioid crisis, so like the stats around it and how to tackle stigma are really more informational-based uh, safety talks. But it's the resulting discussion, like I said, in my opinion, where the sticky learning happens and the sticky stuff is the stuff that you remember. It's the stories that we as adult learners really gravitate to and remember. So we need to give some space for that. Um, another reason I keep things on the smaller size, and I, when I say smaller, I'm thinking like eight to 12 people, is that adults uh, just like to chat. They like to chat about this stuff. Um, and some people think, oh, no, you're going to hear crickets when you bring this up. But you'd be surprised um, if you keep the group small, how one or two people will start the conversation. And then it really starts to flow after that. And when you're in larger groups, that's really difficult. Um, and you often don't get that same level of engagement. And I've got a quick story I can share with you on this. Um, but again, I got to give I got to give a trigger warning here. I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, suicide as I gave a suicide presentation. So uh, when I was a post grad student, I was asked to deliver a talk um, on police suicide to a group of 125 officers. And it was mandatory for the new rookies to attend, but voluntary for everyone else. But uh, this was a little while back now, and um, it was really at that time a real political and sensitive issue. So um, all the senior leadership was there, including the chief of police. So uh, as you might imagine, there was dead silence in the room. You could have heard a pin drop. Um, and there I was on stage rambling about suicide and asking them, uh, you know, to reach out for support before taking their own lives. So, you know. It would have been nearly impossible to engage the audience on this topic in such a large group, right? You had 125 people. You've got everyone from, you know, the chief of police right down to the newest recruit. Um, however, this topic would have been really valuable to been able to engage in with conversation for folks. And so if 
done in such a way that the officers, like I said, could have talked about their unique stressors on the job that, uh, you know, often lead to things like PTSD and mental health challenges and where to go find supports within their workplace and community. That would have been really valuable and probably more memorable, quite frankly, than just having me up on the stage talking from an academic perspective. And, right? that's all the, and that's all the upstream things you're talking about. Is that right? Like when we were talking about upstream before some of those things, that's some of the upstream items? Well, this is just, the topic was really police suicide and, you know, all the stats and recognizing this stressors of the job and how this can lead to PTSD. So, you know, I took a very information academic approach to talking about it and giving them that information. But I bet you, you ask any of the seasoned officers sitting in that crowd, they, they didn't need me to tell them that they're living it. Right. So if I said, okay, we're going to get in small groups now. And I want you between, you know, five of you to get together and talk about your experiences and learn from each other. And what do you do for support? How do you, you know, handle the the stressors of the job? It probably would have been a much richer, fuller conversation. And, and quite like I said, that sticky uh, learning for them versus just, you know, some social worker up there at them. Um, and and too, I think it was a missed opportunity in, in a sense that it could have been a good mentoring situation, right? You could have paired up some of the rookies that were told to go with some of those senior officers and had those open uh, conversations. So, hey, you know, it's it was a learning experience, I think, for everyone. Um, I was asked to do a presentation. So, you know, I don't say no to the chief of police. I come up and <laughs> give him what he wants, right? Um, and it was my first ever um, public talk on mental health. So, as you can imagine... Uh, <laughs> it was, I, you know, it was pretty stressful for me. I, you know, I was nervous. Um, pub public speaking is always nerve wracking. I had pretty much a panic attack uh, during the presentation. I drank, I think, three bottles of water on stage <laughs> to get through the dry mouth. Um, but, you know, I survived and, and you will too. If I can survive standing up there my very first time in front of 125 uniformed officers with pistols on their side arm, on their sidearms, I know people listening uh, will be able to have small group discussions on this topic. Kathy, was there anything that they could have done? Let's, let's use your story on, on the police officers and, and the, the talk they delivered. Um, if the chief of police at that time, uh, could they have, could, could that chief of police have taken any steps prior to inviting you, like before they even said, hey, look, come in and do a presentation, could they have tried to gauge or evaluate their current mental health environment within their workplace? Would that have helped? Oh, boy, Ken, you really are full of great questions today. Um, yes, <laughs> a simple answer. Um, but this is a little bit complex again versus a straight short answer. Of course, like many uh, workplace mental health issues are, Workplaces, we know, really should be talking about mental health, right? And the related topics like opioid misuse. Um, but it really should be done as part of a larger plan to address, like I mentioned earlier, the root causes. So you to do that, you need to sort of get a feel for what's going on in the workplace, right? So one way workplaces can do this is through an evaluation tools, like looking at um, stress assess, which the Occupational Health Clinics of Ontario workers puts out 
um, or you might try using an audit tool like Guarding Minds at Work. Uh, they have an organizational review tool. And this helps workplaces kind of gauge what's going on, right? Where are the hot button issues? But of course, like I said, in my opinion, um, it's never really the wrong time to talk about supporting someone who might be drowning in the river. Those downstream approaches, we, we just don't want to forget that we've got a plan to address those upstream root causes, right? And we won't be able to do that unless we are doing those larger assessments. Uh, so, you know, my advice, I guess, is to really just get the conversations going because um, there's really no harm in taking that lead and there really is uh, risk from holding back. So, you know, I would encourage people to talk and certainly listen and then learn and plan for change together and grow together. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us again on the IHSA Safety Podcast as we look at this series on mental health. It's great to have you. And uh, I know you've given a lot of great advice that to our listeners and uh, the members of IHSA can utilize. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to the IHSA Safety Podcast and our series on mental health. Be sure to subscribe and like us on your podcast channel and visit us on ihsa.ca for a wealth of health and safety resources and information. The IHSA Safety Podcast. For more episodes, tips, and all things safety, go to ihsasafetypodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. Each year, about 5,000 IHSA supervisor logbooks are ordered for supervisors across Ontario. Why is the logbook so popular? Because it was developed by the industry for the industry. That's what makes it unique. IHSA thanks the members of the Labour Management Network and Advisory Councils who contributed their knowledge, experience and time to the preparation of this supervisor logbook. Contact IHSA at 1-800-263-5024. That's 1-800-263-5024. Or visit IHSA.ca. That's IHSA.ca.